1: A weekly look at the issues in the news and the personalities shaping the stories. Special Edition is a production of Intercom Communications. The views expressed by guests are not necessarily those of Intercom Communications staff, management, or sponsors. Now, here's your host, Sue Henry.
2: On today's program, we'll talk to the former secretary of the Pennsylvania Department of Drug and Alcohol Programs about Governor Tom Wolf's recent declaration regarding the dire nature of the opioid problem in our state. We'll visit Merit Badge College and see what the Boy Scouts of America learned recently on a college campus. And we'll talk to an author who learned just how different child-rearing can be in a foreign land. That has become the subject of her new book. Pennsylvania Governor Tom Wolf discussed the dire nature of the state's opioid epidemic this week, issuing a disaster declaration that is usually reserved for natural disasters. The man-made catastrophe took the lives of 4,362 state residents in 2016, with the death toll in 2017 from overdoses expected to be even higher. We had the opportunity to speak to the former secretary of the Pennsylvania Department of Drug and Alcohol Programs, Gary Tennis, who was in office as this epidemic exploded. Tennis now serves as the president and CEO of the National Alliance for Model State Drug Laws.
3: I think all human beings are vulnerable to addiction. So if it's not a, something particular for Pennsylvanians, um, we uh, as a nation are vulnerable to these rolling epidemics. This isn't the first addiction uh, epidemic that we've had. And, and for some of us older folks, we remember the heroin epidemic that Uh, Hit the nation after the Vietnam War, Um, the the epidemic with cocaine and crack cocaine, and then with methamphetamine and ice. Um, The the United States Surgeon General uh, pointed out that our treatment infrastructure is really only addressing about ten to fifteen percent of the addiction need. Uh, We have really uh, nationally, uh, we just have never really fully engaged on this problem. Uh, either in the prevention area or the treatment area, and it leaves us vulnerable to this. This particular epidemic is the worst in history, and the re- the, this one we all know was driven by uh, the extraordinary ramping up of opioid prescribing that occurred started occurring in the 90s, and then just kept going up and up and up. There was, it was very, very aggressive uh, and effective marketing by the opioid manufacturers to, to convince doctors that it was safe to prescribe plenty of opioids for uh, any any pa- aches or pains that you have, and we had a quadrupling of opioid prescribing. That really led to um, an escalating crisis that's been building up over the past 10 years. So now what do we have, 65,000 last year dying of overdoses, and it will likely go up again, and it looks like it is going to go up again in 2017. Uh, so that's really driven it there's There's also uh, sue and stop me if I'm going on too long, but there's also a kind of a a perfect storm a kind of situation that we have here because many of the things that we have been doing to try to push back on this over prescribing of opioids and this glut of prescription opioids that 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 has occurred in America um, in some ways, I mean they all they need to happen but they've also led to this short-term explosion in overdoses. Uh, With our prescription monitoring program, which are really outstanding programs that have now exist in 49 out of 50 states, doctors can see if somebody's going from doctor to doctor to doctor to get more opioids because of their addiction rather than real pain needs. Uh, We did a take-back box program with the department that's collected hundreds and hundreds of thousands of pounds of prescription drugs uh, and we did uh, with the department and uh, we brought the Department of Health in as well we did prescribing guidelines to help guide doctors toward other ways of addressing pain so we really did ramp we have been ramping down on the prescribing of opioids but the, where we have fallen down is we don't have the treatment infrastructure in place and we don't have the intervention mechanisms. so that when somebody gets cut off from their opioids we're getting them to treatment when they can't get the treatment, they go to the street. Because once somebody's addicted, it, it's no longer in the realm of choice. They're, it's really a terrible compulsion. Uh, and they, they end up going to the street. And right now, the street drugs are the most dangerous they've been in the history of America. They're laced with fentanyl, with carfentanyl, with these super, super dangerous drugs. And so people, are, we have this rush of people that have been cut off from their opioids going to the street. And um, we don't have uh, we don't have enough we don't have the mechanisms in place we haven't trained doctors how to do interventions uh, and even if they did intervene and send somebody to treatment, the beds are the places are full because we don't have enough of them
2: it's a it's a lot of information at once, but I, I, Gary, I want to start, yes, it uh, is. maybe maybe the the point where we really do need to start here is uh, before you came on the show, I talked about uh, January eleventh which is today being the the anniversary in 1964 of the release of the Surgeon General's report in the United States that smoking was indeed dangerous. The perception of yep. smoking has changed so much over the year, years. And it yep. seems to me that the way to, to do that is to get kids not to pick up cigarettes in the first place. How can Amen. that be used as the equivalency for now, because we we know that the treatment, we'll get into the treatment, but let's talk about trying to stop this from happening in the first place.
3: Absolutely. You're talking about prevention, and prevention works, and that, in in some ways, is the most cost-effective way of pushing back on that. So we actually have a law in Pennsylvania, and my group, the National Alliance for Model State Drug Laws, has a model law that Pennsylvania is very close to that requires what's called a kind of anti-drug education for K K to 12 anti-drug education in every school. And it's not just about teaching kids about the dangers of drugs. It's also uh, about building more resiliency and more sense of self-determination in our kids so that they don't, um, they kind of have enough sense about them, to know that if their friends are pressuring them to try something, they won't do it. Uh, we have we have prevention programs that are shown to reduce drug and alcohol abuse by 60 to 70 percent that could be put in our schools, uh, and if we did that, we would not only, ha- I'll tell you what, we would not only have kids that are more, I'm going to say vaccinated, but it's not exactly right, but it's like a vaccination against Getting into drug abuse or alcohol abuse. Uh, But we'd have kids that are kind of more resilient, more self determined, kind of uh, uh, emotionally healthier kids growing up into adults and healthier citizens that are a little bit more self determined and not subject to the kind of pressures. Uh, The other thing that we could do along the line you're talking, I mean, what you're saying is exactly right, Sue. Uh, The other thing we could do is we, we have a law for student assistance programs. Uh, these are student assistance programs. Are programs where you train teachers, uh, counselors to identify kids that are look like they're at risk. Maybe mom or dad got locked up, or they're, they have addiction in the family, or there's something going on with the kid, and to kind of intervene with them and get them to the help they need. And often that could be to some kind of help to deal with a drug and alcohol issue. It might be a mental health issue or some other issue. Um, that's also the law in Pennsylvania, and again, that also, in large part, is not being implemented. So there are some really well-proven prevention programs uh, along the line you're talking about that would have a huge, huge lasting Long-term impact on this problem.
2: Are you thinking that uh, this prevention program that you say is, is very successful? Could that be rolled out in a in a crime watch setting or some other place where, if parents were concerned enough and they didn't see it in their schools, is there a way for them to access it now?
3: I think with that if if I were my kids are all grown, but if my if my kids were in, in school now, I would be organizing parents and. Going to the school superintendents and the principals and saying, we have got to get these K-12 programs, uh, drug and alcohol programs, going in our schools. Not, not just because it's the law, but because I want my kid to be healthy and we have an epidemic going on and I want everything possible to occur from my child and all the children in this school. To make sure that they get through this epidemic and that they survive it,
2: what is the program called, or where can we see it, or or how do we? Well, there are a lot of programs. The one I'm thinking there was one. I'm just going to give you one
3: example, but there are a number of them. Uh, We actually had an offer, and this is kind of when I watch all of this. As as when I was, uh, it's a little frustrating to watch in some ways. We actually had an offer. uh, We worked with the the department, worked with the Pennsylvania Commission on Crime and Delinquency, and it was an offer from. uh, Uh, came out of university of colorado for to pay for any for something called botman life skills training and again there are other programs just as strong botman life skills training program and this was one aimed at sixth seventh and eighth graders and it's proven to reduce drug and alcohol abuse by 60 to 70 percent uh it was offered for free to any school in pennsylvania that would take it and we sent uh the Secretary of Education, this was actually under the Corbett administration, the Secretary of Education, and I sent uh, a, qu- a communication out to all, uh, I think there are 500 school districts, all 500 school district superintendents saying, this is on offer for free. We strongly suggest you take it. And we got, we had 50 school districts out of 500 take go up on it. Now, this was offering a free training, uh, ongoing training. Uh, assistance as they move forward, technical assistance as they move forward. They even would pay for the substitute teachers during the in-service days while they train the teachers. So um, there was, you know, I think that there is, has been a tendency, and it's kind of the, the overdose epidemic is really beating it down, but there's been a tendency to be in denial about this problem. Denial characterizes the disease of addiction not only at the personal level but at the societal level. Uh, until things get so bad, you can't deny it anymore. So, I think no school superintendents want to want to um, admit that they have a drug and alcohol, a potential drug and alcohol issue in their school districts but it's time to get over that and get real that we have to, our number one priority is to keep our kids healthy, safe, and alive.
2: Exactly, and I think that any superintendent uh, would be able to accept the premise that they would like to go with a prevention program, but I guess we're not school superintendents. Let's talk about um, rehabilitation, and uh, somebody sent in a a message to us, Gary, that uh, relapse just seems to be such a a horrible problem in uh, rehab so how can that how can that change because we know it's so expensive and we know insurance companies literally never want to pay to go the distance on this one and that they balk at it all the time themselves so how do we make this happen so that it does have efficacy
3: well there are several ways first of all you you really you refer to insurance companies not going the distance and i think you really hit something there and that can even occur in the Medicaid context, too, since we contract out behavioral health care. Usually when you see relapse is sometimes part of the recovery process for some people. So they do. you will have relapse. And recovery rates, success rates actually are better than sometimes the second and third time if they have to go back a second or third time. Uh, relapse occurs in other diseases as well. It's not, uh, It occurs with cancer and heart disease and just about any other disease. So it's not really... Uh, something that's peculiar to drug and alcohol, but the, but but you where you really hit the nail on the head is talking about going the distance for somebody with uh, who who has uh, been addicted to heroin, for example, or they've have a long term addiction. The research is very very clear uh, that if, when they go into rehab, they're going to need a minimum of three months rehab. Followed by the full continuum of care of intensive, you know, stepping down gradually into intensive outpatient, outpatient. And actually, for, for some individuals, like if they've lost their job and lost their family and home, six months is really more ideal. Now, that sounds expensive, but think about the alternative. The alternative is somebody becomes homeless. Um, on the healthcare side, they might contract hepatitis C that costs, what, fifty or $60,000 to treat. Uh, on the criminal justice side, they're very, really vulnerable to getting criminal justice involved. And actually, many of sixty to seventy percent of the people in our uh, prisons are there with untreated or undertreated addiction. So we're paying. What are we paying? Forty thousand a year ad nauseum while they cycle in and out of jail. So it may seem like there's some initial investment there, but they're, they're actually. There's there's research study after research study that says if you do treatment right and long enough, you actually save taxpayers seven dollars for every dollar you invest in treatment. Wow! It's a sevenfold return. You can't find me anything on the stock market that looks like that.
2: Gary, it's so great to talk to you again, and I I hope to talk to you in the future. I know we just kind of uh, tossed around some ideas today, but I think they're good ones. Before you go, is there a place in the country where what you say is accepted, where people will pay, where the treatment is paid for, and it is uh, bearing fruit, if you will?
3: Well, you're you're going to be surprised at this, but the best law, insurance law in the country is actually here in Pennsylvania, Act 106. And the reason that is, is our, our law says that the insurance company can't manage, once the doctor signs the order for what level of treatment is needed and what duration, the, the insurance company is prohibited by, if it's a Pennsylvania based insurance policy, the insurance company is prohibited by law from managing that down. Uh, New Jersey passed, a, 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 I'll call it an Act 106 light, a, a compromised version, as has New York. Most other states have, have uh, envy of pennsylvania for its act 106 um but you asked what we can do the biggest thing we could do right now is enforce uh nationally speaking we can enforce the mental health parity addiction equity act we have a new law federal law that says treat drug and alcohol like you treat other diseases um and if we get if we got that enforced across and new york's doing a really good job of that by the way new york state attorney general schneiderman but, if we got that enforced around the country, I think you would see dramatic a dramatic impact uh, in the health and safety of all our communities.
2: That's former Secretary of the Pennsylvania Department of Drug and Alcohol Programs, Gary Tennis, who now serves as President and CEO. Of the National Alliance for Model State Drug Laws. You are listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications.
1: You're listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications, hosted by Sue Henry.
2: While the students are away for winter break, the Boy Scouts of America use classes at King's College in Wilkes-Barre to earn credits of their own during Merit Badge College. The day-long event gives Scouts the chance to earn several Merit Badges in one location, which they need for the distinction of Eagle one day, or just to learn about topics as diverse as chemistry, chess, and crime prevention, to name a few. We caught up with Matt Fino of Troop. 316 of Avoca.
4: I'm assisting in the uh, Home Repairs Merit Badge, and in that merit badge, we just learned simple uh, common repairs that uh, you would experience around your house. We're doing some building of a wood bench now, workbench, and we have simple electrical uh, wiring now, single-pole, double-pole switches, and troubleshooting uh, outlets. We've done uh, unplugging our pipes from different types of paint on stain and how to properly strip and uh, repair uh, a window.
2: When you look at those kinds of skills and the, the students and, that you're looking at today, do are, they, are you surprised at what they do know?
4: There's a, a, a wide variety of experience with them. Some of them have had some exposure to this uh, type of stuff, and some have none. In, uh, in the electronic uh, world we live in, it seems like a mystery to them that they would actually have to turn a screwdriver. But it, it's fun. Everybody catches on, and, and they learn in the process.
2: It's pretty cool they don't have to learn it from YouTube. They learn it from a real person, too, right?
4: And, and uh, if you're as old as I am, you've learned it the hard way through experience. And just a little bit of exposure is all it takes to this. And uh, some kids take to it very easily, and, and they follow up in the future with their own houses and maybe even a career.
2: How about how scouting has played a role in your own life from your childhood to now?
4: It's exposed me to uh, many different experiences. And that's what merit badges are meant to do, things that you just want to check to see what it's all about. And then some of the badges I've never followed up on. But mainly, I'm a a social worker. I work with delinquents. And the exposure that I've had in dealing with different kinds of kids coming up through the ranks has helped me in uh, my current position.
2: You mentioned to me that you have, you've overseen 16 scouts all the way up to Eagle. That's pretty impressive. Talk about what it takes.
4: The work is all on the kids and uh, they just need to be motivated to uh, follow the requirements to to make it to Eagle. And uh, my role as a Scoutmaster is to be uh, the guide, to, to give them the motivation. For me now it's an honor to be a part of their lives through that part of their accomplishment. And you say 16, it's just a number, but if, whether if it was 1 or or, six, or 60, I would feel the same, that the same sense of accomplishment on my part, that I was part of their lives.
2: What could that distinction mean to them in the future?
4: In the military, you're actually given a, a, a grade up if you're uh, after boot camp, successfully completion, uh, you would get your eagle, and that would uh, expose you to more leadership positions, uh, and in... Your resume, it shows that you have a wide variety of experiences that you can handle uh, yourself in stressful situations and that uh, you can be counted on as a good employee to follow through on a task that is assigned to you.
2: John Sapkowski is advisor for Crew 3701 and the venturing chairman for the Northeastern Pennsylvania Council. He was teaching the Scouts about electricity and simple plumbing repairs in the King's College Chemistry Lab. Home
5: Repair Merit Badge is new to Merit Badge College this year. Uh, we had 19 students uh, come in, so that's absolutely fantastic. We, um, you know, teaching the kids a little bit about standard things you have to do around your house, whether it's going to be how to unclog a drain. Some moms would love that because, you know, they're the ones that usually clog it up. So we want to teach them how to unclog it on themselves. A little bit about uh, standard circuitry, how to switch out a, uh, a receptacle, or how to change out a switch. So they're gonna learn basics. the basics about electricity. We're also gonna do a little bit about building a workbench, which we have going on in the hallway. I'm sure King's is really happy about that, but we did bring tarps, so that's good. And um, we, we showed you the circuit breaker box, difference between a an S-trap and a P-trap, how to take them apart, how to clean that up. We're gonna, later, later on, they're gonna actually learn how to restring blinds. Imagine that.
2: You could save thousands
5: of dollars with these tips. You can. So basically what we're going to try to teach these kids how to do is when they're home to not have to rely on, on calling in a, a plumber or an electrician where they can handle the, the basic stuff themselves as well as when they know they, what they can or can't handle on their own and then, but then also have the basic understanding so that when they do bring in a professional that they're informed about exactly what that particular job should be they may not be able to do it themselves. They might not have all the right equipment or the know-how, but they'll have at least the basic fundamental understanding so that they'll know that that, uh, that tradesman is being honest with them and they'll be able to get a fair price and know how to you know, act accordingly.
2: You might actually introduce somebody to a potential career too, right?
5: That is a, is a we do have one kid who, who the first thing he wanted to do was say, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. And that's why I'm here today is to, uh, is to learn a little bit more about what I've been doing and enjoying myself. So yeah, it's a, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, it could become a hobby, right? I don't do this professionally, but you know, I can rehab a house without a problem same thing with these guys you know they may or may not do one of these things professionally it may be their profession but at least they're getting exposed to so many different things that they're coming in and being able to either make a career out of it or say you know what no that's not gonna be my choice that's not my career i don't want to be dealing with who knows what's gonna be coming out of a uh a, a drain but on the other hand uh, you know, at least, again, they're going to have that basic, that basic knowledge and the fundamental skills to be able to handle things around the house.
2: Joseph Soga of Troop 155 of Shavertown is certain he'll use what he learned in the future. Joseph, you say that you want to do this for a living. What attracts you to clogged drains and electrical issues?
6: Hands on. I don't like being bored, so give gives me something to do.
2: What have you learned so far today?
6: Uh... How to do basic drain clogs or unclogging and uh, different pipes and some woodwork.
2: Tell us just
6: the basics
2: on how to unclog a drain now that you know.
6: Uh, Take it apart and put a cleaner through it. And to put it back together, you need the glue. And to clean it, you could use uh, vegetable oil. What? Yeah, you could use vegetable oil to clean it.
2: Okay, so do you put the vegetable oil in after it's clean or before?
6: After. Okay. And then what happens? Uh, The grip will get looser, so then you could uh, keep taking it apart.
2: What do you want to do when you grow up that is hands-on?
6: Put roofs on houses and siding. Put some windows in. What have you learned
2: about yourself and and some of the things from scouting that you've experienced so far?
6: I don't like being lazy and more hands-on. It's just gives you something to do.
2: Brian Trawig, former scoutmaster and a professional engineer, was the counselor for Mining in Society. He spoke to us about his career.
0: Well, it's an introduction to many of them for the mining industry, but more importantly, what it's like to transition from high school into a career. So while I focus on mining and the technical aspects of that, introduce them to the various aspects of mining, the real focus is helping them to overcome any concerns they may have about what's it like interfacing with a professional, what's it like talking to someone in the mining business, but any kind of a professional, and really do assure them, I I did that earlier today, that it's going to be okay if you have an interest in whatever field it is, whether it's mining or not, or it could be space exploration, it could be anything, that it's okay to just go for it. People like me, I have a lot of experience in technical fields, but when I see somebody come in new, one of these young men that's here today, you know, I want them to know that I'm happy about that, that they have an interest. Uh, whether they know something or not yet, it doesn't matter. They have an interest in learning, and uh, to let them know that that's the attitude they'll, they'll receive when they come into any kind of industry or, or technical field.
2: What made you go for it in mining? <laughs>
0: Well, uh, like these young men, uh, when I was in high school, I didn't know I would go into mining, but uh, there were uh, mines around the town that I lived in, and uh, I was able to get employment at those. And uh, when I went back to college, uh, the college that I was at had the uh, availability of a mining degree. To be honest, it wasn't very popular. And I knew that if I went into it, I would always have a job because it wasn't popular. And so uh, that's actually why I went into it. And that's been true. I've had work ever since. What do you do? I'm an engineer in the mining industry. And uh, all aspects of it, from initial feasibility of a mine to the the end of the reclamation of it. And it's interesting. I'm definitely on the inside of the mining industry. But if you think who has the greatest impact on the beneficial use of an area post-mining, It's actually the miners themselves and how they carry on that operation. An engineer how you design it. And so I'm heavily involved in reclamation post-mining use and uh, beneficial uh, use of of that land for the community, you know.
2: We hear a lot about mining and if there is even a future for it, don't we? I mean, in the election, it it was an issue of whether or not we needed certain kinds of mines, etc. What is your impression of mining as a future for the young people that you're
0: teaching today? First of all, there aren't many young people who go into it and yet it's absolutely required i mean if any of these young men here today decide to go into the mining business they will never be without work i mean and they will be paid well uh, also it's true that some types of mining may uh, fall away and uh, but uh, you always are going to need materials so there'll always be another kind of mining that's required and you know they may have to move around a little bit uh, to find where that uh, that ore is or that material is that they're mining but uh, they'll always have Uh, good job if they go into that business.
2: Certain commodities absolutely have to be mined for the future to happen, right?
0: Absolutely. If it's uh, anything that you see or or use, either has to be grown or mined. It's one or the other. Uh, There's no other place that it comes from. So we do that in as responsible a way as we can uh, with a long-term view of what the future needs to be for that area where you're doing the mining. That's very important.
2: How has your past in scouting helped you Be the person you are today
0: well it's uh you know you interact with these young men and uh again you you can get lost sometimes in the day-to-day of your job or uh you kind of even lose purpose in your own job you know why am i doing this why am i reporting to work every day but when you interact with these young men you have a glimpse of the future Uh, i'll say it makes me feel younger (laughs) But it also helps me stay focused on that long-term, which is the most important for all of us. It's not the day-to-day, that's one thing, uh, but it's uh, thinking about the long-term future of of the community and for these young men helps you in their job that way.
2: Stanley Bednash of Troop 281 of Dallas has been with Merit Badge College at King's for 20 years, instructing metalwork.
7: We're just trying to get them some hands-on training or, or ability to use different tools, Bend metal, make a box, make a dustpan, dry material scoop out of a, a common soup can, cooking pot that they can use at camp, some some hands on stuff, and just give them a little opportunity to experience metal work, whether they want to make a career out of it or or just a hobby or anything.
2: And everybody gets a gift for their mom, right?
7: Yes, yes, there it is, a Father's Day gift or a Mother's Day gift.
2: (laughs) (laughs) What makes you come back year after year to talk to these young people about what you obviously enjoy?
7: I see a great value in scouting. Uh, I've been a scouter for over 24-5 years now. I I think it's a great opportunity to give these scouts, these young men, uh, exposure to these different opportunities in life.
2: I just thinking, in the, the 20 years that you've been here, there might even be scouts that have children by now, so you could be looking at second generation pretty soon. How important do you think it is for young people to a, at least experience work with their hands?
7: It's a lost art anymore, I've always worked with my hands and I find a lot of satisfaction in it and I think, I hope they'll find satisfaction in it too, of accomplishment.
2: What do you normally do?
7: I'm a, a manager for uh, a heavy equipment Caterpillar dealer and uh, I worked with my hands for many years and now I'm a manager and actually I miss it <laughs> but uh, there's uh, different, different opportunities and I just worked my way up in the ranks. So
2: How have you used scouting in your own life over the years? What has Where are the lessons where you go, boy I picked that up when I was a scout and I'm glad I did?
7: Honestly in business. Uh, I, I think of the scout oath and law when I'm doing business with people, honesty, trustworthy, all that. And it's really, uh, I think it's helped me in my career.
2: We also talked with Larry Morton, chair of the Council Advancement Committee and chair of the Eagle Board of Review for the Northeastern Pennsylvania Council of the Boy Scouts. He discussed the value of scouting in his own life.
8: Well, I think uh, asking a question of that nature of someone like me is... uh, elicits a a pretty quick response um, as we reflect those of us who had sons in scouting or who were scouters ourselves as we reflect upon uh, those two uh, focus points. Uh, I was a scout and I know well that scouting turned me from a Less than focused young man to a pretty seriously focused, uh, well-behaved, and achievement-oriented person. Seeing my son come through scouting, I watched him grow from the point when he joined scouting where he was a little unsure of himself to the point where he achieved Eagle rank many years later in vigil honor and the order of the arrow. And when he left, he was uh, truly a very accomplished young man and a person who surrounded his decision-making by the um, tenets of scouting, which center, as you may know, around principles which are timeless, You know, such as being trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, kind, obedient, cheerful, thrifty, brave, clean, and irreverent. If you underscore your approach to life in that regard, you'll do well.
2: Oftentimes we see that young people have a lot of problems in this day and age, how is scouting the answer, and how do you go about to attract people to it in the first place so that they can find out what it's all about?
8: We uh, have a, wonderful, a wonderfully accomplished professional staff and connected with our council. It starts with cub scouting, tiger scouting. These are little guys and now gals <laughs> who are five years old or so and up. And if you've ever been involved with the Cub Scout Den and the monthly Cub Scout pack meetings, you know it was just chuck full of fun and family orientation. I mentioned girls. Uh, that's all for the good. We're now truly a family organization. And where do you find that in our society now? Being able once a month at least to go and meet with all kinds of other little kids and families and uh, have a lot of fun while at the same time starting to learn about what it takes to lead an examined life a life of purpose
2: the introduction of uh, young, young girls into your organization when you first heard about that what, what were your thoughts and and how has it transpired i know it's really new so maybe It hasn't really transpired that much yet, but what have you seen so far, and what did you think at the beginning?
8: Well, you're speaking with someone who started working at the University of Scranton when it was all male. And I went through the throes of contemplating what it would mean to the University of Scranton if females came. And I found out very quickly that it enriched <laughs> the University of Scranton's educational atmosphere in immeasurable ways. I am closest very day to people who came as female students forty years ago to the university and uh, I'm better off for having come to know those individuals through that environment and that's what I thought about when I thought of the, you know, the uh, scouting movement, uh, reaching out to females.
2: You are listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications.
1: You're listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications, hosted by Sue Henry.
2: Author Sarah Zasky learned a lot about the importance of early childhood education and independence when she and her husband moved from Oregon to Berlin with their toddler. She also discovered parents who gave their children freedom to explore their environs, including taking public transportation at an early age and climbing without fear. The lessons she learned are passed along in her new book, Achtung Baby, An American mom on the German art of raising self-reliant children.
9: Well, I lived in Germany for about six and a half years, and when I first arrived there, my daughter was two and a half. And one of the first things I noticed is we had a a picnic in the park when she had turned three with another family, and they had two uh, kids—a three-year-old girl and a five-year-old boy—and all three kids went off to play at the playground, and it was behind a wall, and. None of the other parents thought that they needed to get up and go watch the kids.
2: (laughs) So uh, did you say anything at that time, or did you just sit there? What did you do?
9: I said, Oh, I'll go. <laughs> yeah, I didn't feel comfortable not watching my daughter. And at first, you know, I thought it was just maybe this couple it was a little strange, but then I got to, no- to notice that most of the parents, uh, don't hover over their kids on the playground. And in fact, when the kids turn, uh, eight and nine, they're at the playground by themselves with no parents at all.
2: Well, uh, it, it sounds great, but you know the way I know that if you live in the United States and those kinds of things happen, uh, immediately your mind rushes to, "Oh my gosh, is there a predator?" or "Oh my gosh, am I neglecting a child?" So your your mind as a, a parent, I think, goes in twelve million horrible directions, right?
9: Yes, absolutely, and. Uh But here, the problem is that you send your kids to the playground and there are no other kids. Um, When there's a big group of kids on the playground, the chances of a predator coming to to get them is so low. I mean, the chances are low to begin with. And I think as Americans, we might want to look at why we're so scared about that when the likelihood of it happening is so low. So why are we so scared (laughs) I'm not sure. <laughs> because, you know, when I was a kid, uh, I played outside until my mom called me home. And we were just big band of kids outside without adults watching over us. Um, I, I think it might have something to do with our media that we, we focus so heavily on every one of these tragedies that it seems like it could happen to anyone and it's and it's hard to put it in perspective
2: i I agree that sometimes maybe we overplay it and there's something going on right now sarah that your book refers to that i i think since we were kids has changed so dramatically you're in idaho is that correct yes so it must be a, a billion degrees below zero right (laughs) All right, and it's almost the same here. It's it's cold, and we're expecting some uh, historic temperatures. When we were kids, Sarah, we literally went outside anyway. I mean, you wouldn't go in the house until maybe you lost a toe at the pond, you know, and then you might go (laughs) in the house. But you actually have a, a chapter in your book called No Bad Weather.
9: Right. That's a German saying, and I believe it's in other countries, too, in Europe. Uh, You just have to have the right clothing. And sure enough, you know, we got uh, winter snow pants and rain pants and boots and, you know, the hats that go completely around the face except just the eyes showing. (laughs) And we'd send the kids outside, and and we do the same thing here. Now, do you
2: think that if we started to change our perception of this, because even if there's a... Uh, a low temperature, the probability that it might snow, the the adults kind of go into a panic mode. They delay school, they cancel school, whatever. Do you think that as adults, we're just getting so soft that maybe the concept of self-reliance is not expressed
9: by us often enough? Yes, absolutely. Of course we have to model it for our kids. Um, but uh, the kids... I, I know my kids uh, like to go out. The worse the weather, the more they want to go out, which is kind of funny. <laughs> they want to try it all their gear. They enjoy being outside. And just spending that little bit of time outside, even if it's, you know, just a half an hour, um, that makes them feel better. And as adults, we should try it more, too, because if we spend all day inside, we don't feel so good. Exactly. And you also talk
2: in your book about when kids are smaller— the, the fact that the education begins for them in uh, a, a very critical way, that the kids in Germany start... An education at a very young age. And a lot of us would say, Oh no, that's too young. Those kids should be napping. They should be at home with uh, a a parent. And it's a Mm -hmm. little bit different in Germany, how uh, the um, reliance on that parental figure is kind of uh, diminished as they go
9: off very early and start school. Uh, Yeah. Most German kids by age three are in some kind of preschool. Um, and preschool is viewed at least in East Germany as very differently than it is here. Um, it's viewed as or child care is viewed as something good for kids. Um, it's good for them to be around other kids, um, to learn from other adults and and have new experiences.
2: And what kind of um academic I hate to use things like this? What kind of academic formation happens at three years of age in these preschools?
9: Well, they don't do any formal academics. It's pretty much all about play. Um, The idea is that by playing and learning from each other, they learn social skills. um, They learn how to concentrate because they follow their own interests, and and they learn self-control.
2: All very valuable, because I've talked to people, Sarah, who are in school settings here in the United States, and they tell me—this th- stuff is beyond my imagination, but since they tell me it, I have to believe it's true. They get kids <laughs> in school who don't even know how to stand in a line. So, they, literally, they have to start with the most basic, basic, basic things with
9: these kids. Right. Um we put so much emphasis on cognitive skills, on, on le- learning pre-reading and, and math that we forget that behavior has to come first, um, especially for young children, and it takes a while to learn.
2: Now, how does this lead to the the building blocks of creating self-reliance?
9: How does kindergarten lead to that?
2: Right, or or a a, a child who is put into a a setting at a young age, like a preschool at at three. How does that lead to self-reliance for these kids?
9: Well, in one respect, just removing them from the home and they're in a different environment. They're not dependent on mom and dad to filter out all their relationships. So they're starting to live their own life and and form their own relationships with other people. And I think that's a a huge part of it.
2: Well, I think that you're right on that. And, Sarah, I think a lot of Americans try to—they're involved in this vicarious living exercise with their kids as though they expect their kids— to be little versions of themselves. So maybe putting kids (laughs) in a setting where they see other things, they could actually have the audacity to say to their parents, no, I don't want that. I want to do this.
9: Exactly. We have to realize that our our kids are separate people and they're going to grow into separate individuals. And also that, you know, I have to admit I have limitations as a parent and there are there are wonderful kindergarten teachers who taught my kids things that I didn't have, uh, for instance, a little bit more patience <laughs> than I have. Um, and I really value that.
2: Now let's talk about uh, your your time in, in Germany and maybe some of the things that you heard from parents at first that you uh, had some doubts about, but by watching how they did it, it
9: opened your eyes a little bit more. Sure. I mean, One of the hardest things for me was letting my child walk to school by herself or with just her friends, because in our culture, we don't do that, especially not at age eight. Um, The parents in Germany also will have their kids take the subway or the city bus, not a school bus, like the regular bus. And I would ask the parents, you know, how can you do that? You know, aren't you scared? And they, they would say, yes, absolutely. I'm terrified. However, the kids need to learn this. They need to learn how to navigate their world. And it made a lot of sense to me.
2: Anything else on on that front where you actually thought, you know, this is a good idea and I've been thinking about it in a different way, but this makes sense to me?
9: Sure. Um, They teach learn to use things like knives and matches um, safely instead of prohibiting them. Uh, the, The reason behind that is when you prohibit these kinds of things, some children will try them in secret, and that's when you can really have a dangerous situation. And the more I thought about that, I thought, you know, that makes a lot
2: of sense. Oh, my goodness. This, to me, is is so pivotal because when we were kids, we did so many things that today you just wouldn't be allowed to do. We threw knives at targets. We shot BB guns. <laughs> we did all kinds of stuff. But in today's society, people would come around and say, you're going to hurt somebody doing that or maybe even hurt yourself. So I think there is a, a little bit of a merit to have... S- dare we say, supervision on some of this stuff, but it let them try
9: it. Yeah. I mean, they have to learn these skills at some point. And, um, and using things like knives leads to cooking, you know, and that's something you want your children to learn how to do, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, talk about
2: when you came back to the United States with uh, your family, what was it, did you find yourself then actually talking to other parents and and saying, well, in Germany, blah, 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 and did they look at you like you had two heads?
9: (laughs) Yes. I mean, for a while I thought I could get away with things because I was the exotic parent who lived in Germany, Um, but I did get some uh, questioning looks when I let my daughter bike back and forth to school, um, let her go home when I wasn't there. These are all things that I did as a kid when I was her age. Um, So sometimes to try to remind parents of that and to also when they start talking about they're worried about people abducting their kids, that it's exceedingly rare. And, you know, perhaps uh, we're robbing our kids of something when we don't let them, you know, do something so simple as to bike back and forth from school.
2: Now, some of the things that you talk about have to do with very liberal parental leave for people, Sarah. And then in the United States, this topic is debated. It's debated all the time. And people say, well, how in the world could I live without my employee for years? Uh, Talk Mm -hmm. about that particular concept and, and whether or not you think it is actually feasible in America.
9: Well, you know, it's feasible in most of Europe, (laughs) (laughs) and whenever I tell a European that, you know, I had three months of unpaid leave with my first child and had to go back, um, they're shocked and a bit horrified. (laughs) So the way I I understand that it works in Germany is that that, uh, the maternal or paternal leave is paid partly through the government so um, and through taxes so that the company doesn't really take a hit during that time. Um, It's not perfect. Of course, you still have, uh, you know, the company doesn't really want to lose people. Um, And so there's, you know, uh, women and men will continue to work or go back to work early because they want to continue on in their career.
2: Okay, well, these are good things to think about and talk about. Now, Sarah, have you heard at all from the band U2 about the title of the book or not?
9: I have not, (laughs) but I'd love to
2: talk to them. Is this your way of getting them to talk to you? <laughs> that would be great. That's Sarah Zasky, author of the book, Achtung Baby, an American mom on the German art of raising self-reliant children. You are listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications.
1: Thanks for listening to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personalities shaping the stories.